In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Today's Money Tales guest, Joanna Felzer, walked the creative path from actor to producer. These steps gave her control over the future she wanted while still being able to influence theatrical arts in a powerful way. Under Joanna's leadership, many notable works have been developed, including the 2016 Tony Award winner, Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Like many creative people, early on, Joanna waitressed tables to pay her bills and fund her projects. Money has continued to be a leading actor throughout her career as she helps support her family and the different theater companies she's been a part of. Hi, this is Cami. Joanna serves as the fourth artistic director at Berkeley Rep, a public theater in Berkeley, California. The theater is well known for its ambition, relevance, and excellence, providing a home for emerging and established artists since 1968. Prior to joining Berkeley Rep, Joanna spent 12 years as the artistic director of New York Stage and Film, a New York City-based organization dedicated to the development of new works for theater, film, and television. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways. Now, on to our conversation with Joanna Felzer. Joanna Felzer, welcome to Many Tales. Thank you so much for having me. We are delighted that you're here. We can't wait to hear about the stories of money in your life. And to get us started, would you please give us a quick overview of your journey so far in life, focusing on two or three pivotal moments that make you the person you are speaking to us? I run a not-for-profit theater. I run Berkeley Rep. So that's probably like the current end of the journey. And up to that point, what are things that are important for you to know. I was born in England and then came back to the States to American parents. And we came back to Berkeley, actually, when I was three years old. Both my parents are academics, just retired, each one of them. So I think that probably, as we think about money of some relevance to have been raised by professor parents who have each really followed their passions. And what are the other things? I mean, I guess the fact that I've chosen to make a life in the not-for-profit theater is pretty significant. I went to Wesleyan University, and at the time I thought I would be an actor, which is sort of the follow-on from having spent my childhood training in ballet. So acting seemed actually like the really sane outcome from that. I would say another really key transitional point for me was the moment that I chose not to pursue a living or a a career as a performer, but instead to move into the creative producing side of it. And I guess I say all of that because I think it is important that my parents, while neither one of them artists themselves, were incredibly supportive of 
me pursuing a job and a life that was never going to lead to riches or perhaps more importantly, enormous stability. You know, I think for both of them, and I should be clear that they separated when I was nine. So when I talk about my parents, there are actually four of them that I think of as as really key parental figures. But for my mom and dad, you know, my father taught at San Francisco State for 30 years. So incredible stability in a state university system with a pension. And my mom taught first at UC San Diego and then later at the University of Delaware. So again, these oddly stable lives. My father subsequently married a woman who is a visual artist, a ceramic artist here in Berkeley. So I think he had a real appreciation for what an artist's life was. But the fact that they were both able to look at this life that I was carving, which you know, in many ways had no relationship to the paths that they had each chosen to walk down. And yet they really said, go for it, try, make it happen with our blessing and sort of with some wind in your sails, I think is another really key thing. When I look at the people who have gone into this business in all different facets, there's a really big question happening in the theatrical field right now about who has access to this work, who has access to be a creative person in in our country right now? And do you have to come from means? Do you have to have parents who are in your corner? And what does that mean in terms of whose stories are getting told and who is denied a seat at that table? Let's start in that childhood timeframe. So Joanna, tell us more about what it was like growing up in Berkeley as a young person, specifically around money in your household. How was it handled? Were your parents talking about it? Paint a little picture for us. It was an interesting time. It was the early 70s. So I think there was, in some ways, a real suspicion of people with money. You know, my parents were young when they had me. They were very early career academics, and they were both 24 when I was born. I mean, so just for context, you know, and I think they were in the middle of a really revolutionary time. It was 1971 when we moved back from England. So, you know, they were here in the midst of the anti-war movement, which they were both pretty involved in, the free speech movement, the women's rights movement. There was a real sense of not trusting the bourgeoisie. And yet, to be honest, that's what they both came from. So, you know, (laughs) you got to navigate that. But I do think it was also a moment where people who weren't going to necessarily follow a really conventional path to sort of the quote unquote mid-century models of success were also really respected and lauded in some ways. You know, my mother's father had immigrated from Russia when he was six years old and had really like come over on a boat with his parents with nothing and had that very sort of Horatio Alger, (laughs) almost cliched life of like landing on the Lower East Side and his mother ran not a boarding house per se, but she would cook meals for other immigrant men specifically who had come over without their families. And, you know, so they were living on Orchard Street, uh, you know, in the early part of the century. And he worked as a traveling salesman during the Depression. He was selling watches, Hamilton watches across the country and taking trains across the country. And ultimately, he ended up in LA from the traveling salesman of watches, started a small jewelry store that then grew to three jewelry stores. So by the time I came along, my grandparents had means and yet had come from truly nothing. And so money was 
new in our family's lineage. It wasn't something that anybody was enormously used to. And I think for my grandfather, education was the thing that was the non-negotiable, most valued thing in our collective lives. So part of the imperative for us, and I was an only child at that point, was sort of to get the best education that you could. And it was a way of honoring him. And my grandfather had gone to night school at the new school when he could, but had never had in many ways, the education that I think his brain deserved. But it meant that as he became a person with resources, he was deeply committed to seeing his grandchildren educated, his children educated, and then also to, you know, he founded a nursery school in Los Angeles and stuff like that. So this idea of education, in some ways the most valuable commodity, I think ran really deep especially in that side of my family. And the other thing I think that was a real legacy of my grandfather was a real distrust of credit. (laughs) So, you know, the idea that I was going to take out a bunch of student loans for my undergraduate education was really profoundly distressing to him. And one of the things that he did when I graduated from college where I had gone through with financial aid and work study and stuff like that was he paid off my loans. And I would say that probably that was another really significant inflection point in my life, especially as I began to walk forward in a career in the theater, is that I had the privilege of doing that without the burden of student loans over me. What a great gift from your grandfather, but also for him to be able to give that to you because it's so important to him not to have debt. Could you talk a little bit about how you handled your finances? How were you feeling coming from this family where education is important, but having debt is not a good thing? How were you feeling as you were navigating this? You know, One side of my family talks really, really openly and, you know, my husband would say too much (laughs) about money, (laughs) you know, which is what I remember from my mom's side of the family and the grandfather who I just described. I don't really recall a ton of conversations from my dad's family about money. And my husband comes from uh, sort of a waspy New England family. They just never talk about it. They do not talk. There are many things they don't talk about. So, you know, we came into our life together with probably not dissimilar philosophies about money, but very different facility with, or willingness maybe to to talk about it a lot. What I'm getting is one side of the family that talked a lot about money, the other side that didn't. How were you feeling as you were, maybe you worked as a younger kid and you saved money. How did you prepare for college and for this, at least entrance into debt I want to be really clear. My parents were incredibly supportive of my education, as were my grandparents. So I think in in my, what is becoming a long life, I've been to like every possible kind of school you could go to from the public school around the corner to a magnet school to super hippie dippy private schools to... In in part because we moved so much. And I think if you were the child of early career academics, your life ends up looking like you could have been an army brat, you know, and that you follow your parents to, to their first posts. You know, so I went to a school up in Humboldt County where my mom's first teaching job was, where there were five kids, I think, in a combined first and second grade class and 48 kids in the whole eight grades of school. But that was, you know, Big Lagoon Union Elementary School. That was the local public school. And Ultimately, I went to a really 
extraordinary independent school in Washington, D.C. called Georgetown Day School, which was founded as the first integrated school in, in the District of Columbia. So super progressive, super idealistic, and yet filled with children of privilege. So, you know, there's always that tension, too, between the politics, I think, and the reality of it. I think I started working on, like, you know, I mean, I was a camp counselor and stuff like that, which in reality, I don't know if it counts as work. You don't end up spending a lot of money, but you sure don't make a lot of money either. But, you know, the expectation absolutely by the time I was sort of a junior or senior in high school is that you work during the summer and you save money for college. I mean, like that is just what's what was seen as proper. I worked in a clothing boutique and I worked at an ad agency as a receptionist. I was a terrible receptionist, by the way. And then I started a long and exalted career as a waitress all over New York City, which is, you know, a time on our sideline profession to a career in the arts in the United States. But again, with the expectation that I would work to support myself and that there was a real safety net, frankly, in my parents if I got into trouble. Um, And certainly, I think in my first year in New York, there was help there for me as I I bridged that gap from being an undergrad to having my own theater company, which again, the waitressing was meant to support that as well. You know, I think that's kind of how I began to make my way in the world was really with an expectation and an understanding that you, you can do anything and you are expected to support it. That being said, at really key moments, like the first time and to date only time that my husband and I bought a house, our parents were able to help us with a contribution to a down payment, which for two people in the arts who are choosing to live in two of the most expensive real estate markets in the country, in both New York and the Bay Area now, it's the only way we could have done that. It's great that your family has been so supportive, Joanna. Yeah. It is. It's extraordinary. And I'm acutely aware of the things that it has made possible. So I'm curious, when did you become interested in acting and theater? And, and You know, so I started training in ballet when I was really, really little, you know, like probably four. And I did that with increasing commitment and seriousness until I was 15. And so by the time I quit, I was in a program in DC where you go to high school in the morning and then you go to ballet school all all afternoon. And, you know, sort of that moment where either you're really going to go for it or you're really not. And I think I was probably constitutionally and certainly physically not ever going to be the dancer that I, that would have been satisfying to me. You know, at a certain point you go through puberty and you get things like boobs and hips and it's really throws the whole thing into question (laughs) when they look at you and it's like, perhaps you're more suited for a career in modern dance. And that just wasn't (laughs) at all what had been the dream. So sort of the natural application of that work or that training for me then became like musical theater. So I started doing musicals in high school (laughs) because that's what you do and had a great time doing it. And it felt like a really healing thing in some ways after having abandoned this big dream. And the amazing thing always about theater, like no matter how you're doing it, whether it's in high school or in community theater or in university or professionally, is that this, there's a very intense community that forms around the work. And that was enormously appealing to me. You know, there's an intimacy to it and a vulnerability in it and a sense of shared purpose in it. And I find that today professionally that, you know, I don't know another job 
where you get to go as deeply into sort of a shared sense of humanity with a task to bringing voices in and and their imaginations into the world it's it's a rather unusual way to get to spend your day so i i double majored in college in theater and english and again it was a ba you know i wasn't in a conservatory program and performing i think I'm not sure I knew there was another way through, you know, especially perhaps given the dance training that the expectation was that on stage was the place to be. And I think now you see kids who are so much more sophisticated than I ever was about knowing that you could be a costume designer or a producer. Like, what is a producer? I had no idea. I'm not even sure I'd ever heard that word until much later in my career. And now, you know, kids are producing epics on TikTok. They really are. <laughs> I trained for a year after college at Actors Theater of Louisville in Kentucky, where they had a really amazing training program, an apprentice program. And it was the first place I was exposed to new play development uh, at Actors Theater of Louisville, in addition to sort of being a regular regional theater that does Christmas Carol and King Lear. They also, at the time, were one of the few places in the country that had this really robust program called the Humana Festival, where they they did a whole series of new American plays, all world premieres, sort of smack in the middle of a, a more traditional theater season. And so it was the first place I saw living playwrights, like find their voice and make these shows come to life for the first time. And I thought, oh, that looked, that looked pretty amazing. And when I came out of that program and moved to New York, like you do, and was starting to audition for you know everything from a play to a commercial to a tiny, tiny role in a film to a soap opera, you know. <laughs> I also fell in with this group of people who had all come out of the same training program over about a five-year period, and they were launching a theater company. Again, this is not unheard of. <laughs> but that, and that company, which was called Xena Group, it was named after the bar that was around the corner from Actors Theater. And, uh, and the woman who had run that bar, who had spotted us all to a beer when we had no cash and was really in some ways the patron saint, the first patron saint of, of all of our early careers. And so, you know, there we all were. There were like 30 of us living and working in New York and everybody had a day job to support themselves and to help support the theater. But it was rather extraordinary in that we knew nothing and yet, we started to teach ourselves what we needed to know and to seek out other people who were ahead of us in this profession. And I think in theater, there's this great tradition um, of as you accrue some success or some experience, you do bring another generation along with you. I mean, it's why it is an art form based on this notion of apprenticeship, really in its purest form, that you learn from the people who have who have walked before you in this and you learn from watching them practice their craft and you learn about professionalism and you learn actually the nuances of the art itself. So, you know, we had a lot of people who helped us along the way and we did that for, I don't know, five years or something, maybe longer. Are you primarily acting at this point? Or so that you... was kind of the transitional moment. You know, we were all producing only so that we could create opportunities for ourselves and our company <laughs> to, to perform. And somewhere in the middle of that, I was like, oh, I really actually like the producing part of it. And while I liked the acting part when I was actually doing it, I hated everything associated with like getting a gig. I was, you know, 
deeply afraid of things like auditioning. And at some point, like if you're going to survive this, you have to find the joy in that vulnerability. And let me be clear, I never found that joy. But I really loved the producing part, the the sort of making creative decisions and helping to put together a cast or a group of designers and figuring out how you're going to market the show and how do you budget it and where is the right place and how do you secure a venue and, you know, just like all of those things. What are the conversations you get to have with the writer, with the director? How do you give feedback? So I would say that transition happens sort of smoothly or at least it's smooth in my memory (laughs) over that several year period. And so after a few years of that, I went and I assisted a commercial producer, you know, because I thought, wait, let me actually accrue some knowledge from somebody who is farther along in this field than I am. Though my business partners were amazing. We were all making things up and explaining it to each other as opposed to having somebody who knew a little bit more than we did. And and that sort of was the beginning of I, I guess what I must now call a career. <laughs> the rest of your life. The, that rest, the, beginning of of the rest of my life. life. Yeah. Joanna, when did you get to the point where you could phase out the waitressing? And like what was happening from a personal financial situation through all of this? Because it sounds incredibly scary. New York, as you said, is a very expensive place. You're yeah. in a very creative field with a lot of other people who are trying to create and get their, their yep. stories told. Yeah. It was actually the moment that I stopped working in my own theater company and actually went and worked for somebody else. And it was a really important moment that I gave up waitressing. And in part because you know what a life waitressing does for you? I mean, first of all, it's a cash business. So, and, and you know what you're making as you're making it. And you know, if like you need more, you could pick up extra shifts. Or if that restaurant is losing business, you know, you could go seek it out somewhere else. I'll say one of the amazing things about the place that I actually worked, I don't know, maybe for like four years or something, I mean, it felt like a long time in waitressing time, is that it was a neighborhood restaurant owned by a corporation. And so as waiters, we had health insurance. Mm. I cannot tell you either how unusual that is or how game-changing it was. And so we all held on to those jobs for years. And, you know, we'd cover for each other. Somebody had a show and needed to like step away for a couple of months. And what it meant is that this in this one restaurant had a kind of incredible collection of people who, you know, were Fulbright scholars and reporters and performance artists and, you know, really unusual collection of people who were deeply loyal to the place because we were actually being pretty well looked after and to each other. So there are people from there that I'm still in touch with. And so stepping away from that was really the sense of like, oh, I am about to be a professional person. And being a professional means you can't just like decide you're going to drive across country for two months and cover your shifts. You know? <laughs> um, that I had real obligations. I mean, not that I hadn't felt a deep sense of obligation to my company, but it was different. And I felt like, oh, I'm about to have to be in an office every day from Monday to Friday. And my relationship with the man who would subsequently become my husband was relatively new at that point. And I thought, how are we? And he's a lighting designer for theater. So he is an artist himself and has that you know, very peripatetic life. And I thought, oh, I mean, in those moments, I know I used the word bourgeois before, but it it was scary to me that all of a sudden I was going to become a sort of working professional, even though I was working for a Broadway producer. (laughs) 
but it, it did feel like a real turning point, actually. Did you feel you were giving up anything, you know, giving up on any dreams? Yeah. Well, I was giving up on the sort of renegade status, you know, especially going from like a super, super scrappy off-off Broadway company. You know, I mean, we were working out of a theater in the basement in a building in Tribeca. And this was before Tribeca was, you know, quite so fancy. And that real sense of being able to control my own destiny. You know, I hadn't ever really worked, not as an adult, for other people. I'd worked with other people. But that moment that you go from being in charge of of yourself and maybe even some other people to saying, oh, I'm going to work for you. I think I did really deliberately because there were skills I wanted to acquire that I knew I needed somebody to teach me. I knew I needed to go into a dynamic with people who had been in this profession significantly longer than I had. So I did it all very eyes wide open. And yet, yeah, absolutely. I was giving up flexibility. I was giving, I was subverting whatever my artistic vision was to the people I was working for. And yet I was getting a paycheck every week in a field in which I wanted to have a future. How'd that feel to you, this, this new <laughs> stable? You, you were getting more than just health insurance. It sounds like it, it was stability. Yeah. How'd that, that feel? And training. I learned an enormous amount. And part of what I learned is that I think over time, I was going to want to have more control over that destiny and over those creative decisions. And, and that's kind of, I think, one of those transitions that you make early in your career of, you know, you need the security and the structure of working for other people. And then at a certain point, when you're ready to rebel against that security and structure, it's time to, you know, get booted out and do it on your own. I mean, I think it's sort of that impulse that made me also like a not fantastic assistant. I feel like I'm only telling you about the jobs I really didn't do very well. <laughs> it sounds like there's important learning there of, you know, check totally. that off the box. Don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the amazing thing is that the two producers who I was working for at the time, I, I've really come to see as mentors. And I think, I think they feel like they were really instrumental in getting me to the place, frankly, that I am now. So tell us more about that. So you're you're helping out these producers for a while, then what happened? And then you know, they sort of had a, a professional divorce and so everything fell apart. And for the first time in my entire life, I was unemployed. Like unemployed, like get on in unemployment, unemployed, which was really upsetting because that was not a done thing in my family. Did you have any warning? Was there any signs on the wall and we able to prepare at all? Did I read those signs well? No. <laughs> I mean, in retrospect, absolutely there were signs. And to be clear, I was on unemployment, I think, for all of two weeks. Because then you do what you do, which is you start calling everybody you know, and you say that you're available for work and you need a gig. And, and so I went and I worked as a production assistant on a TV show. And that was one of those things where I absolutely took the job solely because I needed a job. I mean, and I was curious what TV production was like fine. You know, it wasn't like the dream thing, but gotta have a job. And then I went and I worked for um, Walt Disney theatrical productions, just as they were beginning rehearsal for the show that would go on to become the Lion King. Mm. But again, it was a job I took because a friend of mine would be my boss and he really needed help and I needed a job. And then I also thought, 
you know, if I'm going to go sort of see what the most corporate kind of corporate theater is, it might as well be this. And had the great good fortune to be working on a show that was full of extraordinary visionary people. And in fact, the two guys who were running Disney theatrical at that point, which from the outside, of course, seemed like this monolith, were themselves like wildly inventive, um, brilliant producers. So there were, there were benefits to that that I wasn't anticipating at all. And in the middle of that, I did that for, I guess, just under a year. And then there was this crazy thing that happened, which is during the time that I'd been working for the two commercial producers, I'd been sent to see a series of shows at a company called New York Stage and Film. And you know, when you're an assistant, you do something called coverage. And so you go and you see things and you report back to your bosses on what you've seen and what you think of it. And if you think they would like it or if there's a potential future for it. I went up to the Summer Theater Festival. It was on the Vassar College campus. It's incredibly bucolic. There were these amazing New York actors. There were three different shows going on in three different venues. And I had this like very clear sense of, I want that. I can't explain it. I knew I wanted that. And I knew I couldn't have it. Like somebody else had that job. And I came home. What is that? Like, can I just make sure I know? I wanted to be immersed in that very specific environment. I wanted to be surrounded by that level of talent. There was something in the environment that was both so informal and yet so artistically rigorous. That combination of like, I was watching this amazing actor on stage and then I was seeing her between shows sitting under this beautiful tree, like eating a sandwich and you run into the people in the bathroom who you've just watched deliver this completely compelling performance. So it was something in the combination of both the informality and the intimacy of it. And then just art that I thought was really stellar. And they had a great reputation and stuff like that. So it wasn't like I'd never heard of this company before, but I really knew, you know, it was not meant for me in that moment. And I've never been like the Eve Harrington who was going to go like stab somebody in the back to get a role. <laughs> oh, good. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, you'll be relieved to know. Anyway, so like I came home and with a friend who was the other assistant in the office in which I was working, like we designed a business plan for a company that was a direct ripoff of New York stage and film. I mean, and I had like called my alma mater and done a whole thing and spoken to the woman who was running the film department. I mean, like we went really deep in this future plan that was, let's just call it inspired by <laughs> New York stage and film. And then I got busy because I needed a job. And so I was working on Lion King and like somewhere deep into that process, right before we opened the show on Broadway, I got a phone call out of the blue from one of the founders of New York Stage and Film saying, hey, we're looking for a new managing producer. And so-and-so who you've worked with, you know, two things ago suggested we should at least have a conversation with you. Oh my gosh. Wow. What was that call like? <laughs> I mean, I think about it now, and this was like more than 20 years ago now, and I still get sort of a flutter because it was one of the very rare moments where I had that certainty of like, I am meant for you. You just don't know <laughs> it yet. Me. You complete me. I mean, and the reality is like for the next two decades, they did complete <sighs> me. It's great. And I started working at that company in 1998. And worked for the three founders for the first couple of years. And then they made me their partner and we worked together for another three years. And then I did that sort of rebellious child thing of leaving 
And I came actually out to San Francisco and I was the associate artistic director at American Conservatory Theater for five years. Again, because I think I felt like I needed to learn new tricks of some kind. I needed to be somewhere different. And that whole time that I was gone, I stayed in sort of an advisory capacity to New York Stage and Film along with the three founders. And we still made creative decisions together. And they were still very much my family. And so after those five years in San Francisco, I came back to stage and film as the company's first artistic director. And we restructured in a way that would allow me to feel like there was real progression for me career-wise. And I did that for 12 more years. And it absolutely was home, family, graduate school, early career development, completely made me who I am now. It's amazing. It's such a great story. And they remain like my siblings, and we all still sit on the board of this company together. And you know. Joanna, during this time, it's a lot of change, a lot of growth. Tell us about the conversations you're having with your husband mm. about all this. <laughs> my husband has so unbelievably generously, in service of my career, followed me across country three times now. The first was when we left New York to come to San Francisco when I was at ACT. And, you know, he was really, again, early in his career as a designer, kind of getting traction in New York, which is where you most want and need your traction to be as a freelance artist in the theater. And he agreed to come with me because he knew it was a great opportunity for me. It was also maybe a moment where, I mean, I see it as actually a real turning point in our relationship because I think we each had lives in New York before we had met, you know, in New York and preceding that. And so this was like a, our first real adventure where we were going to start something new together. And I think in the back of our minds, were we married at that point? I guess we were. Yeah, we were. It was also about not being able to see a way that in the lives that we were leading in New York at that moment, that we could ever have a kid. And we both knew we wanted to have a child and doing that in the Bay Area as opposed to in New York somehow seemed to make more sense. And I think also for me, doing it in the context of a much larger company, I felt like, oh, I could do something like actually take a maternity leave. Whereas, at, you know, New York Stage and Film at the time, I think it was literally like two full-time employees. And I thought, my God, I can't step away from this for three months or 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so there was something about going into a much larger structure that I think we both secretly and not so secretly hoped would allow us to do that, which it did. And also being near family, you know, my dad and stepmom and my stepbrother and my stepsister all live here. And that was really, really crucial actually in having a kid in the theater. And then when it felt like it was time to leave that and to go back to New York, Russell agreed to do that. And then when it was time to leave New York again and come here, you know, a year and a half ago to become the artistic director of Berkeley Rep. He really graciously packed up the house again. <laughs> you know, and in part, I think the, the thing that we say to each other is like, well, you're a freelance designer. You can work from anywhere. And, and to some extent, that's actually been true. But I don't want to diminish actually what he has sacrificed in terms of relationships and stability and, you know, his relationships to a particular group of directors and other institutional theaters that he really gave up for me to be able to do these things. Did you guys have a lot of conversation around that, around the time of the moves? I would say we've had some conversations <laughs> around it. You know, I probably have 
a greater appetite for like the verbal digging into all of the things than Russell does. For him, he'll get clear about something in his head and then say, oh, okay, let's do this. And then, then it's okay, let's do this. You know, he doesn't actually need to pick it all apart in the way that I apparently do. And Joanna, as your career progressed to these different theaters, they've all been nonprofit theaters, it sounds like. What does that look like from a personal financial situation? It looks like different things. When I started at New York Stage and Film, I think my first annual salary there was like $40,000 a year which again, I was 29 years old. I didn't need really anything past that. Not-for-profit theater is, is not like a highly funded. And part of it is that I think we as a country, as a society necessarily particularly value art or the people who make it. And I think we have all told ourselves for years that because you have the privilege of being an artist, you don't need things like a living wage or health insurance or, you know, family leave. And I say that that is not a criticism of any specific institution. And I think there is great change that has happened and is continuing to happen. But somehow we, again, and I think it's American, though I'm sure it extends beyond that, but this sense that, oh, if you're lucky enough to do something that you love, that that counts as compensation in some way. And I think that's a really, really complicated thing because I think you should be able to do something you love and be able to go to the doctor and be able to have a child and be able to own a home. And maybe it's not going to be a grand place in the best neighborhood or something like that. But I think it's there's something in the financial dynamic that has perpetuated this infantilization of artists. And I think we see imaginative people in a childlike way, and we have created financial structures in compensating them for their labors that have forced them to live in ways that we perceive as not fully adult. I think it's an interesting, the way you break it out, it's it's raising it in a different way. We talked to another another guest who talked about artists have this this perception that they should be suffering. If you're an artist, you shouldn't be thinking about money and almost like it's in contradiction to what their passion is. And I like yeah. how you're presenting it in a different way, sort of same, same, but different. And I think that is the myth around artists is that you're not actually a proper artist if you actually are secretly thinking about whether or not you can send your kid to a particular school, that somehow that... that undermines the purity of your art. And I wish that weren't the case. I don't think I've quite thought about it like that. I think it's actually like super messed up. (laughs) And the reality is when we look at the arts in this country and we compare ourselves to, you know, you think about Germany, for example, or frankly, even the UK, although less so now, you know, those are countries where their government funds the arts. They have national theaters that are funded by their government. And there is this expectation that if you have achieved a level of success or craft or experience that you can be hired in those places, you will be compensated with a living wage, however we choose to define that. And in this country, I think it's been, I don't know if there was really ever a moment. Well, no, there have been a couple of moments, I think, in the history of the United States where there was a real sense of government investment in the arts. And I think right now, as we're sort of in this pandemic and looking ahead to a post-pandemic moment, there's a lot of conversation about like the WPA 
which was a post-depression movement on the government's part to hire artists for civic good. And that's when all of the Diego Rivera murals were created. And there were really artists in the schools and artists who were being tasked with creating work and touring the country with it, bringing theater to different communities where they didn't necessarily have a theater of their own. So that was sort of a golden age in some ways. And it was the beginning of the regional theater movement. You know, that was, an, that was another moment where there was actually funding to create theaters that wouldn't be touring, but that would be embedded in and reflective of their particular communities. But the reality is that has all been almost entirely eroded. And yes, we have the NEA and I'm grateful for every penny that we get from them, but it's, the structure right now is that not-for-profit arts organizations, whether you're a symphony or a theater or a ballet or a museum, are dependent on philanthropy. And you know whether that's individuals or foundations, it's still philanthropy. And that is a very different relationship between artist and patron than it would be in a subsidized structure. Can you say more about that? Sounds interesting. I mean, I think we look back to like the Renaissance where artists were literally dependent on the financial support of a patron. And you realize that then you have to not only be a brilliant artist, but you have to be political. You have to be both sort of, it's that weird tension. And I think we we live with it now in the ways in which we revere celebrities, but where you have to be both exalted in your community and yet you are also entirely dependent on members of your community. And I don't think it's a super healthy environment for artists. I mean, they never, even now, unless an artist is also teaching in a university, for example, they live job to job. And, you know, you could have a job that lasts several years, you know, when you look at people who are in the Broadway company of Hamilton or Chicago or something, you know, you can stay in those jobs for a long time, or you can, you know, get a TV show. And those are the moments that people can do things like have babies and buy houses. But, but sort of your run of the mill, middle of the road career trajectory doesn't afford you many of those things. Certainly not in the big coastal cities that are seen as the centers creatively. And so I think always artists have a sense that they have less autonomy. I mean, they have, again, freelance comes with a lot of freedom. And yet, if you don't have resources that you're not accruing professionally, you're left in a very, very vulnerable place that I don't think actually creates the stability or the safety that allows you to be vulnerable in your work. If you have to be tremendously vulnerable in your life, you don't always have the emotional resources to simultaneously be vulnerable in your work. Joanna, you've been able to develop stability in your work, in your role. Do you feel that way? I really do. And I feel incredibly lucky in that. And on the one hand, it's sort of a shame that I should have to feel lucky, you know, or that I feel quite unusual, you know. I mean, I I work for a big company. I and even through this pandemic, it's created enormous instability, and you know, we've all taken pay cuts and stuff. But still, like, I know there is a security in my life that most people in this art form don't share. And I think it's another really crucial question that's 
very alive in the field at the moment is why our administrators compensated in an ongoing way and artists aren't. And it's a real valid question. I mean, I can sit here, you know, when I feel compelled to personally defend it, which I try not to do. I mean, I can say that unless we can sustain these organizations, we don't have the capacity to be hiring artists. And yet, why is my job valued over a writer or a director or a designer or an actor? And I think it's a real systemic issue, frankly. Is there a way to make a change? Lots and lots more money. And so right now, like if we think about the Berkeley rep, mm-hmm. it's supported by ticket sales. Yeah. I mean, so Berkeley rep is really interesting because many not-for-profits, you know, you're always doing this calculation in a not-for-profit between your earned revenue and your contributed revenue. And, you know, people say the sweet spot is sort of 50-50. Berkeley rep up until this point actually earned a lot more of its money than was contributed. And we were somewhere north of 65% earned revenue, which on the one hand speaks to people actually wanting to buy what you're selling. And yet in moments like this, like what this last year has been, it's meant that we're incredibly vulnerable. So for the last year, Berkeley Rep has been at 93% contributed revenue because we cannot sell a ticket because we cannot open our theater. And obviously that will shift as as we reopen, which we're planning to do uh, in the fall. But it's it's quite clarifying, actually, when you realize where you can control your own destiny and where you can't. And there is some sense of control of one's own destiny when we can say, oh, we're going to make a thing and we're going to sell it to you, the public. And you either will want to or won't want to buy what we are selling. But that, that feels... I think transactional is sort of a dirty word, but when I say it's transactional, I think in that sense, it's actually just quite clarifying. But it's been a year in which the foundations have really stepped up. And I will say that our board and our key donors and our community has really, really rallied around the rep. That's fantastic. That really speaks a lot to the work that you guys are creating so congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. And I'm super grateful to people who feel like that Berkeley Rep is a really key part of this community and is worthy of, of fighting for. Yeah, indeed it is. Thank you. How much does money influence creative decisions that are made at the theater? Oh, yeah, that's a really complicated question because it's sort of like all the time and never. I always want the opportunity to fall in love with a piece of work before I start to analyze, will anybody else love it the way I love it? How much will it cost to realize it? You know, cause you can make something small and, and it can attract a huge number of ticket buyers. Like the sense of scale doesn't always match. But I think if we lose the ability to first fall in love, we've lost our truest artistic impulse. So that has to be first. And then you have to figure out how to do it. So in the best possible, you know, like there's a brand new musical that we're doing in the coming season. It's called Goddess. It's a fantastic creative team. It is their first real full-on musical that they have ever made together. And musicals are hard and musicals are expensive. And yet this absolutely deserves to be realized. It's also not tiny. It's got a cast of 16. 
And so to be in a place, to be working within an organization and within a community that understands why that's exactly the right risk for us to be taking feels incredibly important. And yet we calculate every penny of what that means. So, so I mean, that, that question that you're asking, I think, is, is sort of the Gordian knot of a not-for-profit arts organization, which is that if you think first of money, you'll never make anything. And if you don't ever allow yourself to think about money, you'll never make anything again. You have to make money in order to pay yeah. all the people involved in the production. Absolutely. And I think it's incredibly important that, you know, this is the place where I think the not-for-profit institutional theaters and the commercial theaters really need to be different because part of my job here is to be bringing work into a community that doesn't already know that they might fall in love with it. You know, so if you're going to go see a show on Broadway, and if you do at this point, it's going to cost you way upwards of a hundred bucks. And so you want some sense of return on investment. And it's a one-off. It's not a long-standing relationship with an organization. Whereas if you're going to be a subscriber at Berkeley Rep, hopefully you're going to make that commitment to the organization at some time when I've been here longer. I think frankly, people feel like they're going to make that commitment to me to say, okay, we're going to get on board for this journey that you're going to take us on. And we trust that there will be things within it that we love and things that we don't like so much. But in the aggregate, we're with you and we see the value of having this ongoing conversation. And we'll see over time that there are artists who we've been lucky enough to catch early in their career. And maybe we were in a place where even in something that felt very raw or imperfect, we could see what you saw of that spark of a voice, that promise in them. And over time, we can trust that you're going to bring them back here and we're going to create an environment together that they will want to return to even as they become more exalted in their career because this hasn't been a place of support for them. And we will reap the creative benefits of continuing to engage with them as they develop as storytellers. Like that's my dream for this community, that they will come and they have been, you know, in real relationship. When you look at this community's relationship to Tony Kushner or to Sarah Rule, I mean, these are artists who they saw the raw work and then they saw the mature work and they can legitimately feel a sense of pride in having helped to shape that. I love it. Y- your work is, is really neat. We, you know, you can't tell that you're passionate at all. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like so-so about it so-so. all. So-so. It's know, great. Tepid. <laughs> I'm just curious, Joanna, when you think about all the different theatrical pieces that have been written over the years, what's your favorite story where money is a character? Oh my God. Wow. There's so many. I mean, I think money is like really present because money also can look like power and often does. I'm I'm never going to be able to come up with a favorite because I've loved different things at different moments. I think, but the one that stands out in my mind when you ask that question right now, I think about Anais Mitchell's musical Town, which is a lot about industrialization. I mean, it's based on the Orpheus and Eurydice myth and Hades and Persephone, but I think Anais also really sees the underworld as um, the industrialized world and the world above ground as the natural world. And 
part of what is so exquisite to me in Town is that she's really wrestling with the interdependence of those two things. And I think Persephone is a character who passes annually between those two worlds is in some ways a touchstone in both of those places. Can I just say that? I thought you were going to say the producers. <laughs> That's what kept going through my brain. <laughs> well, and you're not wrong about that because that is all about money, isn't it? <laughs> How do you define success? Oh. So is it, is it you know, <laughs> career or financial? How do you define it? Oh, wow. I mean, at this really specific moment in my life, I think in so many ways this year has been about Back to basics. When people say to me right now, and I think it's the question we all ask of each other all the time this year when they say, how are you? I'm acutely aware of my family's health. The fact that we have made it through this year intact, sort of physically and psychically. I'm really proud of my son who's 16 for having walked through this incredibly challenging, disruptive time. You know, he'd only been here for six months before the shutdown happened. And and again, you know, he moved across country because this is something I wanted. So I'm, I, you know, when I think about success, I think about the fact that he's going to be okay. He has made it through this or almost through this. Okay. I think about the fact that I've been able to be here for my dad and my stepmom in a really challenging, challenging moment in their lives. And then I think about being part of a team. And it has been a team that has helped Berkeley Rep weather this with this real promise to our audience, to our community, and to a group of artists that we would survive this for them. So that feels like the success that I can garner in this moment. And I think if we can build and rebuild an organization where people can feel safe in the telling of their boldest stories, if we can realize their wildest dreams, if we can do it with respect and equity and appetite, that will feel like the next phase of success for me. Wonderful. Tell us, Joanna, what is your next money conversation going to be and who is it going to be with? I think really the next money conversation, and, and it's almost a daily one, is is with my business partner, Susie Medak, who's the managing director of Berkeley Rep, because on a pretty much daily basis at this point, we're we're really staring down the barrel of what we need to do to help Berkeley Rep emerge from this as the organization that we want it to be. And that's about supporting the people that we know we need to bring closer to us who can help in the transformation that'll lead to this reawakening. Sounds like an important conversation to be had. That sounds like you have it every day. (laughs) We have it with some frequency, but you know, it changes over time. The conversations that we were having a year ago are not the ones that we're having now. And, um, you know, the first order of business when we first shut down was just pure survival. And I have to say it was really a couple of, a very dear, close to the fold board members who said to us early on, it is not enough for this company simply to survive. You have to articulate what you want it to be after this. And it really helped us think forward. You know, and it was at that moment that Susie said to me, you need to commission for artists because they need to know that this theater is going to be here for them. And you need to know that they're making stories that you're going to want to tell. And it was 
both sort of the permission and the prod to think big again, because I think when you're in survival mode, you get small. And I know it personally and I know it professionally that you, you, you think about the next step as opposed to like the next reach. And it was a great reminder that for this organization to not just survive, but to deserve to survive, we had to continue to think in a really capacious way. Joanna, I'm so excited about what you guys have planned. I love this conversation. Thank you for talking to us Such about money. Such a pleasure to talk about the big juicy things that nobody ever talks about. <laughs> we, um, we wish you a lot of success and we'll look forward to seeing you in the fall at Berkeley Rep. Thank you so much. I can't wait. Thanks, Joanna. Thank you. Kimmy, it was great talking with Joanna Felzer. I really appreciated her insights as such a creative artistic person and really shining a spotlight on what it's like for many artists in our country today. Mm, Sandy, sometimes eye-opening and maybe even a little heartbreaking. We think about people who have got these deep passions and what they might have to give up to pursue their passion. That's right, Cammie. But it was so interesting when Joanna was talking to us about waitressing, she talked about it in a way that was very compelling in that she had a lot of flexibility. She could decide when she was going to stop working because she had a really good sense of how much money she was bringing in based on the cash she was putting into her pocket as tips were being paid. And I loved what she had to say about the importance of having health insurance in that job. I felt like she found a really special place to be waitressing that had their own mission to support artists, you know, through offering insurance, health insurance, and then also had this great loyalty of other Joannas who, who really would come back and work for them because of the support they got. I thought it was also interesting what Joanna said about how her first sense of success was when she got to quit that waitressing job. She took a role working as an assistant to, to a couple of producers and that allowed her some financial freedom in a very different way. And also how she shared about becoming unemployed at one point. I appreciated the story she told about needing to hustle to network and find her next roles and that she was willing to take roles because they paid money for a job that she could do, even though that's not where her passion lied. To me, Joanna was the ultimate entrepreneur hustling is a part of entrepreneurship. So she was constantly evolving from, what did she talk about? She was a dancer to then musical theater. And then she was on on the stage and then she was behind the stage. What I took away from her comments there, it was founded in her upbringing that you've got to have stability and you have to provide for yourself. That's what she learned, education and then provide for yourself. And that's what she did every time. That's, it, it just kept coming up and becoming such a part of her story. I love when she got the role with New York Stage and Film and got to realize what had become a dream of hers. That was so exciting. And then to move on to Berkeley Rep, which is huge locally and well-known throughout the country. Very impressive. Sandy, tell me, what do you think when she talked about maternity leave 
And she said how important it is to be able to give some of these perks to enable people to go and pursue their passion. Would you what do you think about that? I realized when listening to Joanna's stories that a lot of things that I take for granted, health insurance, a paycheck, the ability to take leave if I become pregnant or something else you know, happens in my life and I need time away. Those aren't things that I had viewed based on my life experience as luxuries. And what I came to realize through Joanna's conversation is that in the arts, they are luxuries. They're not givens. There are a lot of things that artists are forced to compromise on in order to practice their craft. And it became very clear that having a job in the arts, having full employment meant that you have access to these luxuries, these perks, and you could make life decisions differently than if you're an artist who is freelancing and going from gig to gig. Thanks for saying it that way. As I was listening to the story, I listened as a person who said, wow, gosh, those people don't have this. That's so unfortunate and not appreciating what I have, honestly. And by you saying that, I am even much more grateful for exactly what you said. I can take leave. I have a lot of options. I have support through the roles we play. Thanks to Joanna for pointing it out. And I also developed a really great appreciation for the need to support the arts in our country because mm -hmm. of the funding. We've talked in past Money Tales episodes about charitable contributions. That's how a lot of these organizations are funded and they are so important. So I want to give a shout out to people who fund the arts on behalf of all of us. I think that's really important. It really does create a public good. I think it's theater in particular is just such a wonderful place to go to hear stories that sometimes we might not ever get a chance to hear. And that brings me back to a point that Joanna made early in the conversation when she expressed how deeply people in the arts are connected to each other and how they share such a sense of humanity and that their jobs are to bring these voices into the world with their imaginations. And as someone who doesn't consider herself to be very creative, I also appreciate that a lot. <laughs> the next thing that I thought was just fantastic that really ties into Money Tales is when Joanna talked about her husband in service of her career moved three times across the country. And that includes her son as well. I really appreciated that, which seems really very supportive, of course, but also I think about the conversations they must have been having to get to that place and what are the priorities, what are their values. And I, I think about the really the mission of Money Tales is to help people make sure that they're connected to understanding that and you get that connection through having those conversations. That's right. Also expressed a lot of gratitude around that. Thank you, Joanna Felzer, for a wonderful conversation. I learned so much. I also appreciated what she brought to our listeners. I do too, Cami. And I really can't wait to go to the theater again and go lots of other places. It's been far too long. And the idea of sitting uh, in a dark room with other people and being entertained with important stories and seeing people live on stage performing their craft is so compelling right now. Oh, me too, Sandy. Me too. I'm leaning in. 
Yes. And thank you also to our Money Tales listeners. We appreciate your listenership. We love that you're you're listening to these stories. You're commenting uh, to us about how you are being positively impacted by them. That makes us feel so good. And uh, we'll remind you, you, you can reach out to us always at podcasts at Aspirient.com. Thank you, Cammy. Thank you, Sandy. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammy Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.